Thank you very much, uh, Dennis, and thank you, uh, Kath and Ian, for bringing those readings to us. I'm so delighted that uh, Dennis reminded us afresh today, we should always be reminded of this, we meet in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is Christus Victor, the great Victor. And on this, uh, for those of you who are familiar with these things, this last Sunday in the church's year before we enter the season of Advent, sometimes known as the Festival of Christ the King. Isn't that a wonderful thing to think about as we gather this morning? We gather at the feet of Christ the King. What a wonderful, awesome thought as we, uh, as we gather here this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer, shall we? We thank you, gracious God, for reaching out to us with the love of Christ, such costly love, such sacrifice. We pray that you would warm our hearts to you this morning. Give us hearts which long to be obedient to you, long to know Christ and to make him known. And we pray even as we turn to one of those great books which anticipates the coming of Christ, the book of Malachi this morning, you would teach our hearts afresh of the sort of people you want us to be. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for those who uh, might be with us for the first time, we've been looking at the, the book of the prophet Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Of the 39 books in the Old Testament, this is the, the, the last one. Malachi comes to us as someone probably around 440 BC, and then we enter this period of apparent silence before the dawn of the New Testament era. But it is a book which anticipates the coming of Christ, and we're reminded that the, uh, the people of Israel have come back from uh, their punishment in captivity in Babylon. They're now back in their own land. And uh, the big question arises, what sort of people will they now be? Will they have learned the lesson of what took place in that uh, chastisement in, in Babylon? Well, we come to the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, and uh, I hope you've been following through at how, as Dennis reminded, what a contemporary word this is, what a powerful word to our own culture and our own civilization. As we've been thinking about what's happened in our world in the last week or 10 days, uh, what's happened in those terrible atrocities in Paris and now in the West African country of Mali, it goes on and on, we might be wondering where is this all going to end? In fact, it may even be, God forbid if this is the case, that we are crying out against God, where is the God of justice? Well, that, that is the text which comes from our reading today. God forbid that we should descend into that sort of uh, doubt or that sort of cynicism, but we need to understand that we are always, always standing on that cusp between belief and unbelief. And we need to be aware of the great danger of slipping into unbelief. Uh, it's interesting, isn't it, as we come to this passage this morning, that it should address a rather different issue. While the cry, where is the God of justice, is the cry of doubting people, we do want to know that God is just. We do know what it, that, that, that God is absolutely just, and he will, either now or in the future, punish wickedness wherever it is found. And as we think about the terrible circumstances in our world today, um, it's how, how interesting that we come to this passage, unplanned. It's simply this passage which comes uh, before us. I couldn't help thinking that uh, what would God say to us in the midst of this? Well, he says something altogether different in a way to what we might imagine. For this passage is about 
how do we respond to injustice in our midst? If God is a God of justice, how do we respond to injustice? And do we tolerate injustice? Do we turn a blind eye to injustice? Or are we so used to it that we are immune to injustice going on right throughout our own culture and society? I could not think as I reflected on the the history of the the French people, and uh, some of you know that our son and daughter-in-law and three grandchildren are living in France. They've been there for 12 years. We were a little nervous, as you might imagine, what happened last weekend. We made contact with our son this week, and uh, he was in Paris two days before these atrocities, and again in Paris two days afterwards. How different things might have been if he'd been there in the midst of this. Circumstances had conspired to make that different. But I began thinking about the history of the French people, and particularly the events that uh, led up to the, uh, the French Revolution. And any of you know a little bit about the, the French Revolution will know that uh, the nation was in real strife up until this point. There'd been the, the costly involvement in the American Revolution and extravagant spending by Louis XVI and his forebears, Louis XIV, extravagant spending on things like the Palace at Versailles. If any of you have been there, you'll know something of the outlandish extravagance and in the meanwhile, the country was bordering on bankruptcy and uh, prices of bread were skyrotting and uh, there was a failure to provide relief instead in uh, the imposition of heavy taxes. And we can only imagine, what was God thinking about the, net, the land of uh, France prior to the revolution? Of course, the revolution came, the reign of terror followed it, and if you know anything about French history, we'll know something of the, the, the catastrophic results, in a sense, which followed on the, uh, the revolution. I'm glad to come to this passage today, but, uh, not least because it is a, a very contemporary word, and I hope that you'll, you'll grasp this. Um, right at the heart of this passage, by the way, is this text in verse 5 of chapter 3. This is, in a sense, the centrepiece of this passage. I will come near to you for judgment. This is God speaking. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless, deprive aliens of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, if you're familiar with the message of the prophets, the great prophets and the, uh, the minor prophets, as we sometimes call them, you'll be aware that this is one of the, the great themes of the prophetic books, if you like, social injustice. The great prophet Isaiah, as early as chapter 3 of his remarkable book, denounces the social evils and private luxury which had become commonplace in the nation in the latter part of the 8th century B.C., Oppression and greed had taken over and the nobles seemed indifferent to the plight of the needy. Pretty much the situation in France around 1789. Great injustice in society. Um, indeed, uh, we might imagine that, they, that God would intervene there to do something about it. But the word of the prophet is God's intervention. And so the prophet foretells of a terrible time when anarchy will come upon the land and the Lord will take away the rulers and all who might guide the people. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 3. So terrible would this be that people will search desperately to someone to be their ruler and guide, but it will all be in vain. A complete collapse of society, we'd call it. Anarchy prevailing. 
This will be the consequence, by the way, of their disobedience and total disregard of God's righteous standards. For that's the backdrop against which this prophecy comes to us. God is a God of justice. He is absolutely right in all that he does. And his covenant people are meant to reflect that rightness in all that they say and do. And it is worth pondering in, uh, in detail the issues which Isaiah focuses upon because they help us understand Malachi a little bit better. And uh, the evidence of the uh, degrading nature of the nation and the depravity of the nation. Six woes are singled out which are worth pondering in the light of our experience. We call ourselves the lucky country. Maybe we're not as lucky as we think we are. But in chapters 28 through to 33 of Isaiah, six things come into focus. First of all, grasping landowners are denounced for the way in which they continually strive to extend their holdings and so as to at the expense of the poor and those who had no land at all. Think about that as a contemporary issue. The nation is in danger of being brought to ruin by riotous and drunken behaviour. Thirdly, there are those who seek to overthrow the established moral order. Do we see that happening in our midst? A redefinition of marriage? Things tolerated that our, our forebears would never have imagined would have been tolerated in their lifetime? And, uh, and then, of course, the, those who actively commit atrocities, blatantly challenging God to act in judgment. Or fifthly, the, the fifth way I was addressed to those who utterly are self-confident and leave God out of their lives completely, utterly preoccupied with the self. And then there are the corrupt judges who prefer justice in the courts, who are described as heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. What a terrible indictment against a nation. To think that a nation of God's people should actually be guilty of those social sins. But it is their rejection of the law and the way that they despise God's word which is at the heart of their condemnation. So I want you to ponder this for a moment and especially to think about in our own hearts where might we be guilty of the same false attitudes. So first of all, God's concern for injustice. It's worth remembering, by the way, that right back in the, uh, in the book of the covenant in Leviticus 19, where the, the Ten Commandments are spelled out and some, uh, some are elaborated, we read this in, in Leviticus 19, verses 13 and 14. Do not defraud your neighbour or rob him, do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight, even overnight. Do not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block in front of the blind, but fear your God, for I am the Lord. Now you need to read that whole chapter about the covenant obligations. But here is a very explicit command about how you are to treat your neighbour. Now we stand in church here week by week and regularly we recite the shorter form of the commandments. We say... Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. That's right there in Leviticus 19. How are we to behave towards our neighbour? Think about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who is my neighbour? The lawyer asked. Not the person you like. It may be the person you are uncomfortable with. So the command of God and the, the, the covenant obligations are very strong as we address this issue what does it mean to 
care for the neighbour in our midst. Now, it's hardly surprising that when this sort of thing is going on amongst the covenant people of God, exploiting the vulnerable, oppressing the poor, that God's anger is roused. In Malachi's prophecy, we don't have anything like the ruthless expose we have in Isaiah, but the same drift into sin and indifference, cold indifference, is there. It seems like that in 200 years, nothing much has changed since that discipline which the people have been put through in the land of uh, Babylon. You see, the primary focus in Malachi is on those who oppress orphans and widows, who have a total disregard for the plight of the alien in the land, and so on. Malachi is clearly concerned about social justice. And like all good ministers of God, the prophet couldn't separate responsibility towards God from responsibilities associated with the people God had created. There's a a dual responsibility here. It's worth noting that the number of the laws in the Pentateuch, that's the first five books of our Old Testament, that are devoted to the protection of widows, orphans, aliens or foreigners. Apparently in the ancient world it was very easy to exploit such people and there is a lot of material in the Torah, God's law, devoted to this issue. Some years ago when I was the minister at Castle Hill, I preached a series felt led to preach a series on the theme, The Stranger Within Your Gates. That, of course, is a state which comes from the command about keeping the Lord's day holy. All your, everyone's to do it, your son and your daughter, your manservant and your major, and the stranger within your gates. The very term's a very evocative term, isn't it? Who is the stranger within your gates? Who is the stranger within our circle of movement? What is to be our attitude towards the stranger within our gates. Indeed, I found myself asking, how does our nation, our culture, deprive aliens of justice? It's interesting that the criminal justice system in the United States guarantees such people are treated with respect and dignity. The law protects such people. It guarantees that they are treated fairly. What about people here in Australia? Do those in the private sector have such a concern for the underprivileged? Do you and I go out of our way to reach out to those who are most vulnerable in our society? One of the things I've been encouraged about as we've come to live in the Southern Highlands to see one of our prominent businesses employing people who are intellectually challenged. We have to be careful of our language these days, but I think you know that I'm, who I'm referring to and to see the, uh, the wonderful uh, generosity of employing people who have some significant disability. And I wonder if we as a church have the same conviction, the same passion to reach out to those who are the outsiders, as it were. God's concern about injustice. It'd be good for us to go into discussion groups at this point and start talking about what does this mean for us as a congregation? What does this mean for us as families? What does it mean for us as individuals? But there's a second aspect of this passage as well, uh, which is equally challenging, and that is people who apparently have given up on God. Indeed, the second disease evident among the people in Malachi's day is right clearly front and centre in this passage. 
um, you'll, you'll find uh, in those words, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And in the dialogue between God and his people, the reply comes back from the people, how have we wearied him? And the answer in the words of the prophecy is by saying that all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. That is, God's favouring the baddies and we are being left out and we're angry about that. Why won't God come through for us? The charges that the prophet brings against the people, they are accusing God of favouring those who do evil and therefore calling into question that God is truly just. Now, my friend, that's a very serious issue when you start challenging God in that way. A severe criticism of Almighty God that you should challenge one of the foundational doctrines of the very nature and character of God. As one commentator puts it, they had given up on God and had grown spiritually uh, cynical and morally corrupt. How has such a decline... Uh, entered into the life of God's people here. Let me say, by the way, when we are tempted to doubt God or, worse still, starting to become cynical towards him, that is a very dangerous place to be, Uh, a very dangerous evidence of a spiritual decline in your life. When we become cynical about spiritual matters and begin to mock God, as it were, this is a perilous state of affairs. So we need to come to our knees to acknowledge the seriousness of actually harbouring such thoughts in our minds. I'm reminded of the, uh, the, the life of uh, one very cynical, angry, uh, disturbed woman called Madeline Murray O'Hare. I've shared the story with our Bible study group on Tuesday night. And uh, in the book written by her son, William Murray, she was a woman who brought a case against the city of Baltimore in the United States courts, claiming that her son was being discriminated against because prayers were said in the school assembly where he went to school. So she decides she's going to take on the the nation and bring a charge against the nation that uh, her son should be subjected to such things. As the founder of the AAA, that's not an American Automotive Association, by the way, that's the American Atheist Association. As the founder of that association... She developed a hatred of God and despised Christian people and everything that they stood for. On one occasion it's reported, indeed uh, William Murray, her son, writes this in his book, My Life Without God. Uh, On one occasion she uh, reported to be involved in an electrical storm. There was a wild electrical storm raging and she goes outside into the electrical storm in the open as the lightning and thunder flashed about her. Her father was reading the newspaper on the veranda at the time and uh, as she went through this charade, which I'm about to describe. Indeed, uh, as she stood in the open screaming abuse at God and challenging God to strike her dead, if he did in fact exist, uh, the, uh, her son writes as follows. Uh, you can imagine what it must have been like for this young man, by the way, growing up in, in such uh, a, 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 an environment. But... Here she is challenging God to drive her dead and the William May writes in the book, her father continued reading the newspaper. He, like God, paid very little attention. As if you can make God act like some sort of puppet that you can sort of scream out and expect God to bow to your ridiculous, utterly ridiculous and ungodly words. You can, of course, imagine what it must have been like for young William Murray growing up in such an environment 
But the sequel to the story is that William Murray eventually turned his back on this chaos. Indeed, he eventually committed his life to Christ and is today serving God in travelling the country, exposing the error of what his mother stood for. It's recorded in his book, My Life Without God. What a dangerous thing it is to get cynical and mock God in that sort of way. If we ever allow those thoughts to creep into our hearts, we are one step on the road towards what Madeleine Murray O'Hare stood for. A very dangerous step indeed. The attitude, it seems, of the people of Malachi's day needs to be understood against the background, of course, of the hardships of the post-exilic period. Spiritual cynicism, mocking God, and so on. Maybe the people had unrealistic expectations and hopes of what life would be like when they returned from 70 years in captivity and to take up their lives again in their own land. Maybe they imagined a new golden age similar to the time of what it would have been like under King David. But the reality was that these hopes and dreams were quickly dashed. And how important it is we do not have unrealistic hopes, unrealistic expectations. You see, even the temple of Zerubbabel was hardly comparable with the temple built during Solomon's reign, a mere poor reflection of it in a sense. And uh, when things don't turn out like that, like our expectations imagine they will, how tragic when people become cynical and disappointed. How much more serious when people's trust in God is shaken and uh, people... Uh, when they believe God doesn't come through to them for some reason. I've had so many experiences of people where I've prayed with people with a sick child or something else has happened, uh, some tragedy in their life. You've tried to reach out to these people and when they get over the hump, they, they just walk away, never give God a second thought and how tragic that is. I'd call some of such people fair-weather Christians. They do not know how to remain firm in their trust and confidence in Christ even when adversity strikes. What is wonderful to see is of a robust faith in God when people remain strong and committed even when things don't turn out as they might like. Like Job in the Old Testament is such a man even though the devil stripped him of everything, wealth, family, position... Uh, he refused to descend into self-pity and to curse God for his lot. Even his wife counselled him to take the easy way out, you might remember. And uh, she says to him, uh, why don't you just curse God and die? Take the easy way out. But Job's reply to this was simply, you are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from the Lord and not trouble And the writer of this remarkable book simply says, in all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When pushed to the limit, his response was, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And the author of the book concludes in these significant words, in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. In all of this, he did not charge God with wrongdoing. He had an absolute rock-solid conviction that God always does what is right. He is utterly just, utterly to be trusted. Never doubt that for a moment. So responding to the crisis with anger and cynicism is no answer at all. 
blaming God for our lot when things did not turn out as we might, or worse than that, charging God with wrongdoing is a serious matter. The writer calls it here sinning against God. So let me come to the third point here, and that is, again, such a a crucial theme in this passage. When God comes, he comes in judgment. One of the themes of the prophecy is that when God comes, it won't mean that you'll be vindicated as the nation hoped. They might have been trodden down by their enemies, and when God comes, he'll pat them on the back and say, I'm for you. Oh, no, not, not quite like that at all. It will mean that justice and righteousness and truth will be established. And their wrongs will be righted and judgment will begin at the household of God. You know where that text comes from? 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been reading through 1 Peter. We'll read that passage next week. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? We don't like the idea that judgment might begin at the household of God among God's people. But that indeed is what the scriptures teach. Here in Malachi, we have one of those best-known prophecies, of course, taken up in the New Testament. Malachi simply records, See, I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. And then skipping down to verse 5, So I will come near to you in judgment. And then that reference to those immoral practices like defrauding workers of their wages, oppressing widows and orphans, and depriving aliens of justice. The people have wearied the Lord with their response, blaming him for their circumstances. You can almost hear their whining and whinging in their services of worship. This echoes, of course, the words of Isaiah 43, verse 24, which speak of God's mercy and Israel's unfaithfulness. I'd urge you to go and read the whole of Isaiah 43, But there's one statement there which says, You have not brought any fragrant calamus for me or lavished on me the fat of your sacrifices, but you have burdened me with your sins and wearied me with your offerings. What is that saying? Unless the heart attitude is right before God when we come before him, all of our offerings, all of our words are empty words. God is concerned about the heart, the heart attitude. The sacrifices which God now finds repugnant were meant to express changed hearts and lives. God doesn't want their offerings. He wants them as symbolised by the sacrifices. And that is no different with God today. It is exactly the same. All the offerings that they were bringing, which they considered to be a burden imposed by God, added to the mountain of unconfessed sins which they kept piling up before God. When we figure things out in our own way, our own flawed understanding, which is what the people were doing here, charging God with injustice, etc. When we figure things out in our own way apart from God, when we know what we want to get and how to get it, the result will be we no longer need God. We push him to the periphery of our lives. Instead of being central and square and the central focus of our lives, he becomes something on the periphery. We don't need to rely on God. We know that the questions uh, we have uh, won't be answered by, by God. We don't turn to his word anymore. So God, who seems to enjoy disturbing the comfortable, 
uh, becomes an intrusion on our lives. We don't like the idea that he should intrude upon us. And in this situation, we need to hear those words, so I will come near to you for judgment. When God says, say I will send my messenger, we're reminded of Malachi's name, of course. You remember from our first sermon, the name means my messenger. But it's not Malachi who the author has in mind, but a figure like the great Elijah, the fearsome prophet, who called on the name of God on Mount Carmel and urged the people, choose today who you will serve, whether it be Baal or whether it be God. This fearsome, amazing figure. A wild, powerful figure who stood firm in his trust in God even when everyone else was tempted to flee. Now Jesus quoted this passage from Malachi in Matthew 11 verses 10 through to 14. Speaking about John the Baptist, he said, What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? The implication being, of course not. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. For this is he about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of me. When the great Christ event was to dawn in history, God would send his messenger in the person of John the Baptist. What this suggests is that Malachi wants us to understand that a revival of prophecy would happen before the coming of the Lord, and this would be fulfilled in the ministry of John the Baptist. Here was a true prophet, one who prepared the way for the mission of Jesus Christ, calling people to repentance to be genuinely sorry for their sin and seeking a clean and pure heart. Note too that he is to be the messenger of the covenant, calling people back to the covenant which had been established at Mount Sinai, which the people had effectively torn up and gone their own way, something which the nation of Israel had completely lost sight of. You know, according to Amos, the day of the Lord is a day of darkness and not light. You can read about that in Amos 5 and verse 20. Yet God's purpose is to purify rather than to destroy. Did you catch those words at the end of the passage? He's described as being like a refiner's fire, refining, purifying, and like a fuller's soap. You know, a fuller was one who bleached cloth. Quaint expression for us, but one who bleached cloth and restored it to its brightness and this is the role of the coming forerunner that he would be one who would purify and whiten God's people that is what God desires in all of us that our hearts should be pure and we should be we should turn from the darkness of sin to a life of righteousness and judgment will begin at the house of the Lord in the person of the priests for they will be the ones who are to be God's agents of purification. Verse 5 reminds us that God is deeply concerned about the morality of the people, as we've seen. This coming judge will expose and deal with all evildoers and those who turn aside the stranger. The stranger in ancient times would have had few friends to protect him and to ensure that he received justice. He was a a nobody in society. It's for this reason that special concern was shown in the law towards the stranger or alien. See again uh, Leviticus 19. 
This prompted me to think about those in our community today who stand up for the alien or the stranger, the person who has few friends in high places. This is a time to search our own hearts and to see if there's anything there which is comparable to the sin of the nation of Israel in Malachi's day. Do we complain when we see jobs going to immigrants that we think Aussies should be first and foremost entitled to? Do we resent it when a helping hand is offered by the government to refugees? Do we get annoyed when we hear people with foreign accents who are answering the phone when we expect good, clear Anglo-Saxon voices? And more importantly, do we believe that God is deeply concerned about justice, righteousness and truth? This passage from the prophet Malachi reminds us that in every age, people of earnest faith swam against the tide of popular opinion and went to the aid of the underdog. The great names come to us like the Earl of Shaftesbury, who in his his efforts to abolish the Factory Acts where young children were working extortionate hours in the factories, a terrible social evil. Or Dr Bernardo, who established his homes, a deeply Christian man, and of course William Wilberforce and his tireless efforts to abolish slavery. A remarkable, devoted Christian man who was never quite to see the outcome of all of his efforts. The question is, where do we stand on the contemporary sins of our culture, our society, which continue to be an affront to a holy God? And are we prepared to allow him to do his refining and bleaching work on our lives to make us the sort of people that are acceptable to him? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word. The writer of Hebrews says, The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, the joints and marrows, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. As we are honest before you, we know that your word does discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. May you purify us in thought and in action. Make us the sort of people that you want us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.